0: Okay, so in November of this year, the V&A will be host to an exhibition showcasing the work of one of the most important and experimental photographers of the 19th century. Born in 1815, Julia Margaret Cameron was criticised in her lifetime for her unconventional and innovative technical approaches, photographic, photographic methods which resulted in the characteristically soft-focused portraits, as can be seen here. Yeah. <laughs> Um, In November 1865, Cameron (coughs) exhibited her work at the V&A, an exhibition organised by the museum's founder and friend to Cameron, Sir Henry Cole. As it transpired, this was to be the first and last time her work was exhibited in a museum in her lifetime. As photography gradually emerged from the margins of artistic legitimacy throughout the 20th century, so too did appreciation for Julia Margaret Cameron's work. The VNA's celebratory exhibition can be understood then as an artist coming home. A glorious conclusion to Cameron's slow procession into the artistic and national canon. Coming 150 years after her first show, the VNA's twenty fifteen exhibition invites a consideration of not only Cameron's canonisation, but the process of canonisation itself. National galleries and museums all participate in a form of establishment storytelling functioning as spaces and sites in which certain meanings and realities are produced and reified. Indeed, as one walks from room to room in national gallery or museum, one is taken, quote, on a journey through the stages of a nation's history. In the ensuing discussion, I will explore the extent to which such spaces are compatible with the fundamental elements of feminism and anti-authoritarianism. As John Berger writes, museums are full of holy relics which refer to a mystery which excludes minorities and oppressed groups. Can feminism exist within the structures of national galleries and within the walls of museums? As canonization produces seemingly coherent narratives of nationalism, how might other cultural meanings be detected outside of or apart from the canon? To address these questions, my thesis will present two moments from the 20th century, capturing and focusing on events significant to Julia Margaret Cameron's posthumous career. These non-linear snapshots act as interventions in the continuum of art history. Possessing, quote, retroactive force, these moments will call into question the habitual process of canonization, so often a tool of of the ruling class, or in feminist terms, the patriarchy. The first moment I want to focus on, central to Cameron's canonisation, occurs in the latter half of the 20th century. Whilst pop artists such as Andy Warhol and Robert Rauschenberg incorporated the photographic image into their work throughout the 60s, it was not until the early 70s that photography emerged as an appreciated art form in its own right. Victorian photographs and dusty family albums began to appear in the auction houses of New York and London, and in October 1974, an album of 94 portraits by Cameron became available for auction in Sotheby's in London. The album, of which there were no negatives, had been compiled by the artist herself, annotated in her own hand, and designed as a gift to her friend, Sir John Herschel. Featuring some of the most eminent figures of Victorian society, including Carlyle, Tennyson and Darwin, it was deemed upon auction an object of unique historical significance. Sam Wagstaff, a notable American curator as well as patron and lover of Robert Mapplethorpe, key figures in the New York gay scene, pictured here, purchased the album for £52,000, an unprecedented amount of money that resulted in international controversy. As news of Wagstaff's (coughs) purchase rippled through the art world on both sides of the Atlantic, British newspapers reported the sale of the Herschel album in fits of indignation. As you can see from the accompanying slide, the reports used increasingly hysterical language and the words na- national and heritage are cited repeatedly. Indeed, Wagstaff's biographer Philip Gefter notes that an album which had never before attracted much attention was being appreciated for its major artistic significance to the British Empire only now that an American was poised to own it. <laughs> Calling the album the missing jewel in our crown, the keeper of photography at the National Portrait Gallery, Colin Ford, launched a fundraising campaign to keep the album in the country. As the Times reported, the appeal was instigated to raise enough money to buy the album back before Wagstaff could export it to New York. (coughs) After a few months, sufficient funds had been raised and Cameron's work was rescued from the hands of the supposedly arrogant foreign buyer. Reporting one year after the sale, the Financial Times informed readers that the National Portrait Gallery is now displaying the celebrated presentation album, which was saved for the gallery and the nation by public subscription. As her work graced the walls of a gallery built to, quote, display portraits of the nation's great men and women, Cameron and her medium were finally given the official seal of institutional approval. That Wagstaff and his collective contemporaries were part of the fabric of 1970s gay New York should not, as Gafter writes, remain a mere footnote in art history. The rise of the gay rights movement in the early 1970s occurred simultaneously with a growing interest in photography as an equal among the arts. Throughout his career as a curator and collector, Wagstaff was drawn to the arcane and the disregarded, from being among the first to champion minimalism in the 1960s to finding relief and humour in portraits of cats. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> preempting the internet obsession by several decades. <laughs> um, for Wagstaff, Cameron's photography and her hitherto-neglected status as an artist exemplified a camp aesthetics of alienation made up of signs and symbols parallel to the experiences of gay men in 1970s America. These meanings of difference and resistance are lost amidst the cries of nationalism and Wagstaff's act of artistic audacity and brave innovation is assimilated into the mainstream. The next moment I focus on endeavours to wrest Cameron's photographs from this oppressive canonical tradition, offering further alternatives for signification. I am directed towards this moment by an article which appeared in the bookseller in 1975, which states that, in light of the publicised Sotheby's debacle, the Hogarth Press, Virginia Woolf's publishing house, would like to remind booksellers of their book, Victorian Photographs of Famous Men and Fair Women. This book, edited and compiled by Virginia Woolf, Julia Margaret Cameron's niece, uh, great niece, sorry, uh, was first published by the Hogarth Press in 1926. It features many of the same models found in the Herschel album, plus the famous prints of Julia Stephen, Woolf's mother, pictured here. For Woolf, 1926 was a paradigm-shifting year, noting in her diary that never, never have I written so easily, nor imagined so profusely, 1926 saw the composition of To The Lighthouse, a liberating writing experience resulting in a novel at once experimental and nostalgic. Upon To The Lighthouse's publication, Vanessa Bell wrote to her sister Virginia, Anyhow, it seemed to me that in the first part of the book, you have given a portrait of mother which is more like her to me than anything I could ever have conceived as possible. It is almost painful to have her so raised from the dead. You have made one feel the extraordinary beauty of her character, which must be the most difficult thing in the world to do. So you see, as far as portrait painting goes, you seem to me to be a supreme artist. To the Lighthouse fictionalises and memorialises Wolf's mother, Mrs. Stephen, in the creation of Mrs. Ramsay, And in this section, my thesis will connect Cameron's photographs, revealing Wolfe's contempt for Victorianism as a societal pressure and a patrilineal narrative style. Mrs. Ramsay's silent beauty, evident in the following quotation, what was there behind it, her beauty, her splendor, was there nothing, Um, unquestionably conjures Cameron's images of Julia Stephen, in which her beauty is at once immortalised, objectified and impenetrable. Commenting on the destructive power of idealized femininity, I argue that To the Lighthouse should now be considered as a mode of ekphrasis, a text which informs and is informed by the Elegiac photographs of personal significance to Woolf. This, I argue, is demonstrative not only of Woolf's engagement with multimedia art, but her feminist project at large, in which creation and artistic genius occur outside of of the traditional generic boundaries of textual and visual life representation. Viewing these photographs through the prism of To The Lighthouse, the great men and fair women are no longer national treasures, but relics of a personal and painful past. Wolfe seizes her ancestry, and through a symbiosis of visual and textual signs, she creates a pathway through which personal relics can be viewed as at once feminist and nostalgic, without being necessarily treasured. Having established the political allegiances between To The Lighthouse and Victorian photographs, I will conclude by addressing the ways in which Cameron's work has continued to thrive outside of prescribed domains, most notably in the photographic work of Patty Smith. Like, bear with me. <laughs> uh, since 1978, when Patty Smith was first inspired by kindred spirit Robert Maplethorpe to take up photography, she has infused her work with personal meaning. The images, like To the Lighthouse, are totemic. Using a polaroid camera, she distills portraits of cities, artists and authors into a o- single object of purported insignificance. Black and white with soft exposure, Smith cites Cameron's work as a key influence on her artistry. Patty Smith's direct, direct assimilation of Cameron into her work presents a particularly clear case of cultural cross-fertilisation, one in which the aesthetics of a canonised high cultural figure Enter into an influence of popular and, in this case, countercultural discourse. Smith's punk practice is a continuation of her music, which appropriates and rearranges the poetry of high cultural figures such as Arthur Rambeau. Flicking through the pages of Smith's book, the establishment nationalist stories of artists are unravelled. Instead, one is taken on a transnational, trans historical journey in which the personal and artistic intermingle in perfect, beautiful harmony. Smith's practice of artistic intervention reached its apex in 2003, when her photography was exhibited in the homes of Virginia Woolf, Vanessa Bell, and Julia Margaret Cameron, respectively. Through these exhibitions, Smith established a dialogic relationship with the past, creating a space of artistic sisterhood, ultimately undermining the authenticity of nationalist narratives often found in galleries. In conclusion, as Virginia Woolf writes, it is for us to scan the horizon and see the past in relation to the future. Taking precedence from the work of Smith, we must continue to produce new social meanings and cultural values outside of dominant canonical narratives. When we walk through the exhibition at the V&A later on this year, we would do well to remember the voices of Woolf and Wagstaff, who regarded national canons with healthy suspicion.